I think much like this morning's message, I'm going to, of necessity as I go, take some side roads that are necessary. Strange thing about both of today's messages, most of my Sunday morning messages have been written out in advance word for word. I don't read them word for word, but I write them out and review them so many times that hopefully I can get up and and give you what I've prepared. A lot of time. It takes a lot of time. But I want to be fully prepared. Um, This morning's message, for example, was very different from that, where I I had two sides of the page scribbled down, but probably more time in preparation went into this morning's message than uh, any other message I've preached this year. Just because of the time, it's, it's, it was the result of the time that I've spent with the Lord over the last five or six weeks. And tonight's going to be similar. Uh, I don't usually prepare this way. I've got a notebook that looks nothing like my normal notes right there. And uh, I'm going to realize as I go that there's some things I need to say. And I'm going to start right off with one of those things, all right? I'm going to tell you a story in a minute, and I'm going to throw out a name. The name is Wayne Shemish. Before I get there, i got to tell you who that is. And, but I don't want to stop my progression to tell you then. So I'm going to tell you first who Wayne Shemish is, and then I'm going to get through my story, and then I'm going to get back to him. Okay, so um, you know Pastor Doug Fisher. He's preached here a couple of times. Uh, he's had a profound impact on churches across America. He pastors in Lemon Grove, which is basically San Diego, California, has a tremendous church. Uh, never went to Bible college. Uh, I've told you his story a little bit. And uh, he, um, uh, he, he, was, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And uh, he just a very impressive man. God saved him. And he went to, ch- went to work in a church in California. He was uh, uh, retired from the Marine Corps and college graduate. And he went to work in a church. And all of a sudden found himself as the pastor of the church. And uh, just, as I told you a few weeks ago, headed into it saying, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to follow the Lord. And uh, now all these years later, he would tell you, uh, that was 30 years ago. Now he would tell you, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm following the Lord. And just amazing, his, his simplicity, his humility, his wisdom is, uh, is just unbelievable. Well, okay, so that's, that's Pastor Doug Fisher Brother Fisher has somebody who who helps him. So just as you listen to Brother Fisher and you go, wow, I've never heard that before. Just incredible. But it's all right there in the Bible. He he just, amazing. He has a friend who is a pastor in Australia who is the same kind of person. Very quiet, shy, and um, does not, not, you know, not some outgoing, bubbly personality, but when he preaches and it's all Bible and, and you, when he's done, you go, who just smacked me in the head? That was unbelievable. I can't believe that. We, were, we had the great privilege this week, Joey and I did, to uh, two nights in a row just sit at a table with uh, me, me here, Joe here, Brother Fisher here, and right here was uh, the, the man who's in the video that's on our homepage right now, Tony Shirley. And uh, he's a pastor that God is using tremendously from North Carolina. And just, he has a gift for getting people to open up to the Lord. It's, it's tremendous. And so two nights in a row, we're sitting there and, uh, and, and talking. Well, so uh, 
the one night, Tony Shirley says, uh, hey, tell them how you and Brother Shemesh met. They were talking about Brother Shemesh. And he said, okay. He said, a number of years ago, I was preaching in Australia, Brother Fisher said. And he said, I preached. And he said, the other preacher was Wayne Shemesh. And he, we didn't really talk to each other because neither one of us talked to people. So it was like, you know, okay. So he said, so I went to a restaurant. He said, oh, I preached that night. And he said, I absolutely failed. He said, the people didn't respond. He said, the people didn't like me. He said, so I went to a restaurant afterwards, and there's the other speaker, Wayne Shemish. And he said, I, you know, I said hello to him, and he sort of treated me like I would have treated him. Like, you know, I don't know what, Australia, good day, maybe, I don't know, but uh, just, you know. And um, so he's, Brother Fisher, try, can you imagine? I mean, I've had friends of mine tell me, I tried to talk to Brother Fisher, and I can't even get eye contact. Now this is Brother Fisher talking to Brother Shemis, and, and he can't get him to respond. And so he said, uh, he said, can you tell me what, you know, he's in Australia, and Brother Shemish is an Australian pastor. And I, said, I don't know, this has got to be, I'm guessing this is 15, 20 years ago. And he says, uh, I failed tonight. Can you tell me? I've never preached in Australia before. Can you tell me why I failed? And Brother Shemish looked at him, he said, you did fine. That's my best Australian accent. You did fine. And Brother Fisher said, no, no, listen to me. I did not do fine, and we both know it. And he said these words. He said, I want you to wound me. He said, when I said I want you to wound me, Brother Shemish physically moved. In other words, his body said, okay, now I'm interested. And he turned towards me and he started to explain how the confident, cocky, arrogant American thing does not sell much in Australia. And this is, really is not the point. It's just the story of how they met. Um, and so he got a lesson and, and he told him about the, the tall poppy. I've heard, uh, I've heard Brother Fisher talk about that before messages that Australians don't like the tall poppy. In other words, in a field of, uh, of, of poppies and there's one that springs up and like it's trying to steal the show. And they said, cut it off. That's, that's ruined. Thing. They don't like the, the, the one who tries to be Mr. Big Time. And he gave him some other advice there. From there, it became a very strong friendship. And in the years since then, when Brother Shemish comes to America, and which he does, I think, several times a year, just as Brother Fisher goes to Australia seven times a year, uh, several, several, not seven, several times a year, uh, they try to get each other in each other's services. Because if you've heard Brother Fisher preach and how he just walks you through the Bible. You use more Bible than Brother Fisher's messages than anybody else you can imagine. And he just makes you think and he puts the pieces together. He preached the whole message the other night, uh, Brother Fisher did, from the scripture. And we looked at, at a dozen or more different passages. Uh, he preached a, a whole message on this question. When, when Martha was serving and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, Jesus told something to Mary that the Bible says, it's right there, will never be taken from her. What was it? What was it? And he never authoritatively said what it was that he taught her, but he did show this. This is amazing. Have you ever wondered, I'm, I'm a, on a trail, off a trail, off a trail, but we'll get back, I promise. 
He said, uh, have you ever wondered? He took us to the resurrection. And the names the women who went to the tomb on resurrection morning. And Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is not there. Why is that? Because they were going to anoint the body. Mary had already done it. And we had already been down that road, looked at all those scriptures. Mary had already done it. He said when she took that alabaster box and broke it and used very, a, a prized possession, both the box and the ointment inside. And, and so it's, it's, it's like the most precious treasure you have and you're giving it up for a moment. And it was to anoint him to his burial. How did she know that? Now, he wasn't trying to prove anything that that's what Jesus told her when she sat at his feet and learned while Martha was serving. But it sure made you think that he must have told her something because she anyway. So that's the kind of stuff when when Doug Fisher preaches that you come away going, wow, (laughs) wow. And Brother Shemish is the Australian Doug Fisher. Okay, so now let me tell you another little story. We were at the summit, and uh, Brother Charlie gets up. He said, I got this preaching CD. He said, it's got dozens and dozens of messages on it. And um, Brother Fisher's selling it and, and uh, making it available. And he said, I'm rec-, Brother Charlie said, I'm recommending that um, every pastor here get your hands on a copy. If we run out, we'll make some more because you need these messages. Excuse me. And Brother Corky bought me a copy. Brother Corky, I didn't know what I had done with it. I was, I was going crazy. I was so scared you were going to ask me how it is because I haven't been able to find it. I was in my room the other night at, at the camp meeting, and I'm going through a book I haven't used in a while in my briefcase. Bang, there it was. So what do you think we listened to all the way home? Me and Joe listened to Brother Shemish just about all the way home. Okay, so... That's the pre-introduction right there, okay? Oh, boy. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's not going to be like that. Let me get to the introduction, and then I'm going to get back to that in a second. I've been in church my whole life, been reading the Bible since I could read, and really have made, tried to make a study of this thing of man's relationship with God and trying to learn everything I can. I've always wondered why. God needs me to pray. You've heard me say that before. And maybe when you've heard me say, you thought, what's wrong with you, pastor? We don't need to know why. We just need to pray. I know, but why? It's almost as if, and I know this is not true, but it's almost as if, and this is the the, the very bad picture that I have in my head that I want to clear out because I want an answer, okay, God wants to bless Matthew. No, no, I'm sorry. Back it up. This, that's not the picture. This is the picture, almost as if I had these pictures in my head. God doesn't care to bless Matthew, but I want God to bless Matthew. So if I'll go to God and say, God, I got this friend Matthew, and he needs you to bless him, and it's as if God is saying, well, I don't really care about Matthew, but if you'll pray for him, I'll bless you. Because without your prayer, I'm not going to bless him. 
If you'll get two people, if you and your wife will pray for him, then it's more likelihood I'll bless him or I'll bless him more. If you get the whole church to pray for him, then almost certainly I'm going to bless Matthew. But if, you don't, if you're not interested, I don't really care. Now that's not accurate, but that's almost as if it's that kind of a picture that's in my head. Until I can get this answer, why? Why doesn't God just love Matthew enough to just go ahead and bless him? Why does he ask me to pray for him? And then if I'm tempted to think, well, God was going to do it anyway, then, well, he didn't need my prayer. Then, then, then prayer is just busy work. Well, wait a minute. I know God cares about Matthew, so I refuse to believe the first scenario. And I know God doesn't just ask me to do busy work, so I reject that. So we're back to the question. Why does God need me to pray for these things? Why doesn't he just do what he wants? So back to Brother Shemesh. We're driving home somewhere in Pennsylvania, I think. And he's preaching a message, and we're probably on the sixth or seventh message that we've heard Brother Shemesh preach now. And I didn't, I didn't go from one to the next. I listened to one. First three I listened to in a row, and then I shut it off because I just want to think for a while. And then, I, you know, we drive for a while, and, little music, maybe a little bit of sports or whatever. And then let me go back. Let's hear another one. It was probably the sixth or seventh message coming home the other day. And Brother Shemesh made this observation. This is, be careful. This might blow the top of your head off, all right? I saw somebody go, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Will's going to be making jury. Hold on there. The Bible, he said this. It's not a quote, but this is a summary of what he said. He said, the Bible records one time in the history of the world when God made something from nothing. One time. One time when God made something from nothing. And that, of course, is in the six days of creation. He said, after that, God has always had something To work with. Now I'm not done pondering that thought. But I am ready to move on based on that thought because I trust Brother Shemesh. I'm still, you know, I've got sort of a sort of a analytical or devil's advocate mind where as soon as you tell me the Bible doesn't say something, I'm I'm gonna find it, you know what I mean? Because by the way, if I can't find it. That just makes your theory stronger. So right away, my mind's racing, just like yours is right now. Okay, where's that place in the Bible where God made something from nothing? He had, where besides creation. I haven't found it yet. So let me read the statement again. The Bible records one time in the history of the world when God made something from nothing. The six days of creation. After that, God has always had something to work with. For example... God has always had some action on man's part. Yes, he made the walls of Jericho fall down, but he required the children of Israel to march around once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day, and then God did it. Yes, God provided for the widow through Elisha, but he required the widow to get as many containers as she could. How many times in the Bible do you see 
the, the question to, in some shape or form, what do you have? Action, surrender, obedience. Here's a Sumerian, I'm sorry, Syrian, a Syrian captain who comes to Elisha and says, I want to be healed of leprosy. And Elisha, through his servant, says, tell him to go down to Jordan and wash seven times. Did the water heal his leprosy? No. God did. But God required some action. And I've been going through the books of the Bible mentally and thinking and pondering. And so far, this stands up. The Bible records one time in in the history of the world when God made something from nothing, the six days of creation. After that, God has always had and always required something to work with. I was in my place of prayer. I heard that, what, Thursday coming home. I was in my place of prayer Friday morning. This time I was, I don't want to tell you where because I want you to steal it, but you'll never find this anyway. By the Sodom Reservoir, a little parking spot there. Imagine, we have a reservoir named Sodom. It's in Brewster, but... But along the Sodom Reservoir, and there's a little, I found a parking spot there, just so peaceful, quiet. And I pulled in there, and that was my place of prayer. And I was in my place of prayer. And I mean, I, I, these, it's so real to me. I, I feel like I'm there again now. And I'm pondering, as I'm praying, I'm pondering what I just shared with you that came from Brother Shemesh, that The Bible records one time in the history of the world when God made something from nothing, the six days of creation. After that, God has always had something to work with. By the way, Brother Shemesh went on to say this applies to everything, including salvation. And we all know this. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard somebody say nobody has ever gotten saved without there being human instrumentality. And that's consistent with that whole idea of God always requires Something. So, you know, I know somebody who read a Bible one time. Who printed that Bible? Who made that Bible available? There's always a human instrumentality, okay? So this applies to salvation. So I'm in my place of prayer when it hit me. This is why God requires me to pray. Because he always requires A human instrument. It's not that God doesn't want to bless Matthew. It's that God only one time in world history was in the business of of bringing life or material or whatever it is from absolutely nothing. Since then, he's required something existing. Some obedience, some action, some surrender. Here, Lord, use this, some gift. And that being the case, if that's God's process, that's why he requires me to pray. Now, right about here is where the brainstorming ends. And now we are going to get dogmatic because the rest of the message is just straight from the Bible. But the foundation 
And it's, I think it's just absolutely profound. The foundation has been laid and things for you to ponder, things for you to consider. And uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your input at some point. But now the rest is straight from the Bible, so let's, let's don't miss that the rest of the message now is straight up where we need to be. There are a couple of thoughts that are open for discussion, but I think they're pretty clear-cut in the Bible. 1 Timothy 2. God calls upon believers to pray for everybody in the world. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, you understand, first of all, that all men means all people. This is not a male-female thing. This is all people. Secondly, I absolutely reject the idea that in the Bible that, that all means, uh, well, I mean, that means all the elect. No, it says all men. If it says all men, it means all men. So, and, and by the way, just in case you doubt that, he's saying to pray for kings and all that are in authority. So in case you'd say, no, it means all men in the local church there. Well, the kings weren't in the local church. The people in authority were in the... No, he says all men, it's all men, so all people. God calls upon believers to pray for everybody in the world. And he gives us two purposes. Number one, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, you could make the argument that that statement applies to the kings and all that are in authority. And that's a pretty good idea. But let's just say that that applies to the whole purpose of praying for all men. That we pray for all men, number one, so that we can get along with other people. Whether you want to apply it just to kings and all their authority or apply it to everybody, I don't think it matters here. It does say that if we'll pray for everybody, including people in government, that we can, it'll help us to live a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But there's a second purpose. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. Hold it! Praying for all men is tied to all people being saved. Now I've heard people say before, the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere that you're supposed to pray for lost people to get saved. I think it does. Praying for all men, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved. Now we won't go into the whole predestination thing, but there's a pretty profound statement that you'll have to trip over if you're going to believe in the elect as, as it's defined by the reformers. It says who will have all men to be saved. I mean, I don't know what you're going to have to insert in there to, you know what I'm saying? But let's leave that alone. God wants everybody saved, therefore it's acceptable to him for us to pray for all men. Okay, the argument could be made, and you, I don't usually get this, you know, whatever, de de debateful, that's not the word, but, uh, but it, I, I told you, we're probing tonight. The argument could be made for this passage that hypothetically, 
If everyone in the world were being prayed for, hypothetically, everyone in the world would be saved. Now, I'm not making that argument. I'm saying you could make that argument based upon this passage that we're to pray for all men. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. What God? The one who wants all men saved. So the implication is that if we were praying for all men, all men could potentially be saved. I'm not saying let's pray for the whole world so the whole world will be saved. But here's the point I'm getting to. With all of that, if everything I've said so far, you, you say, Pastor, I don't know. Okay, I think the rest is, is pretty indisputable based upon what we have seen. If God, God, clearly God wants everybody. How many can't see? How many can see? How many can see in that passage? God wants everybody in the world prayed for. Pretty clear. How many can see in that passage? God wants everybody in the world saved. Okay, here's my question to you and to me, and we're almost done with the message. You say, oh, boy, I was afraid you were just getting started. No, we're almost done. How many people that you interact with on a daily basis have no one praying for them? So if God never anymore does something from nothing... There's not a chance they're getting saved. Now, I put an if in there. But what makes us think that we're going to evangelize the world without praying for the world? I want to take the time to give you some great illustrations, but really, I don't think I have to do anything at all for all of us more than just say what what I've got to say here. Except to say this, as I look back over my life, the most spiritually productive times as far as influencing other people for Christ have been when I've been praying for people. And the, the opposite is true. The least spiritually productive times as far as influencing people have been when I've been trying to do the work, but I have not been consistently praying for those people. How many people that you interact with in a, on a daily basis have no one praying for them? Is it possible... That God brought you into their life so that they would have a daily prayer partner. We are so guilty, Christian, of looking at people and judging them. Weirdo, freak, liberal. Instead of praying for them. Do you know, if I could use that language, which lesson, I, I am, the older I get, the less and less of a name caller I am and want to be, of anybody. I don't care what color their hair is or how many earrings they've got or what, what tattoos or rings or anything. But I'll use those names I just used. Do you know how many weirdos have been saved? Lots. Do you know how many, how many uh, what was the other word I used? Left, let's go with liberal. <laughs> you know how many liberals have been saved? Lots. And I don't think it was just because somebody left a tract in the bathroom. I'm not against leaving tracts in the bathroom. But I think more of them have been saved because somebody set out to pray for them. 
So let's go through this again. How many people that you interact with on a daily basis have no one praying for them? Is it possible that God brought you into their life so that they would have a daily prayer partner? You are not going to win family members before you start praying for them. You are not going to win friends to Christ before you start praying for them. You are not going to win co-workers to Christ before you start praying for them. We're Okay, we're so guilty of that. We are all so guilty of this. Looking at people in our lives and going, oh, I know I need to, I know I need to witness to them. And we try, we chicken out, we try, we chicken out, we try, we chicken out. And we really think that it all comes down to our courage and our skill in witnessing. I think the most scared I've ever been to witness to somebody is when I was 18, I was going to college. It was right where where my daughter is and where Lauren is right now is exactly where I was, 18 years old. And I was mowing Mr. Milligan's lawn for the last time. He was my grandfather, Joe Vasek Sr., his friend. And I cut his grass. And I would cut the grass, and he would come out and give me my $6. Like clockwork, that happened. And I knew today when he came out to give me my $6, this is the last time because I'm going off to college, I had to give him the gospel. And I was scared to death. Mr. Milligan was the kind of personality that just took over everything. Nice as could be, but he just he just had a very dominant personality. And I had prayed and prayed and prayed. And he came out and 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 it, sure enough, um, 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 Mr. Milligan, I uh Yeah, what? What Joe? What Joey? I um uh, I was just, you know, I'm going off. Yeah, I, I remember um <laughs> I remember him telling me that day. He said, you're going to college. He was a comedian. You're going to college. I said, yeah. He goes, stay away from Mary. I said, Mary who? Mary Joanna. (laughs) That's Mr. Milligan right there. And this is the guy I'm supposed to witness to. And he... It was the worst gospel presentation that you've ever heard in your life. I stuttered and stumbled and apologized, but I gave him the gospel. And when I was finished, he said, well, thank you, Joey. I'll think about that. Gave me my $6 and said goodbye, and that was it. By the way, while I was in college, he passed away. But he had sent a letter. I think he sent it to my parents' house saying thank you for the talk we had before you left. It meant a lot to me, and I believe what you said. You know why? Because I didn't do it. God did it. He just needed somebody to pray and to go for it. We are not going to win our family and friends and co-workers before we start praying for them. Last thought. Ask God to show you who he wants you to put on your prayer list. Okay? 
Now look, I understand. You say, man, I can't pray for everybody I meet. And no, does God want me to walk down the street and take names? <laughs> Excuse me, what's your name? I don't want to pray for you. I'll put you on my... No, you'll probably get arrested. <laughs> Creep! No, I'm not. But how about this? I don't know about you. I'm a creature of habit. I get my gas at the same gas station. I go to the same. I go to this when I go to the. I go to the same register on the same store. I go to the same pump. Am I lying? I go to the same everything every time. We were in church all week in Gaylord, Michigan. I went at every altar call, the altar, and knelt right here in the same spot. I went one time, and somebody had taken my spot. Then I had to repent of being bitter at that guy for taking my spot at the altar. I am a creature of habit. So you go to the same place, pay attention, and and ask God to show you. It doesn't mean that everybody, that every waiter, every attendant, every every doctor is supposed to be on your prayer list. But I'll tell you what, if you're paying attention, God will say, um, get that guy's name, put him on your prayer list. We went to, I'm still fighting a battle of my foot. What had seemed to have gone away came back. And, and, but I didn't know how to get back in with my old doctor. I don't mean I knew how to do it, but I didn't know how to, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, no, not this again. It was like that. So I went to my regular doctor about a month ago. And the regular doctor said, do you know we have a podiatrist and wound care expert right here in our office? I said, no. He said, Why don't you go see him? So we went and saw him. This past Friday, by the way, after I had been in prayer that morning about this very thing, about, hey, these people, these are contacts that God wants you to put on your prayer list, to pray them to Christ. So I go home, we get ready, we go to the second visit to this doctor that we just started seeing a month ago. I'm not kidding you. We're sitting there, and he starts opening up to me and Amy about his personal, a doctor. Doctors don't do that. I've been to enough to know they die. there's a wall there. Don't ask about my wife. Don't ask about my kids. I'm your doctor. This guy who, and this guy, he's, he's experienced. He's been around a while. Just starts telling about heartaches that his wife had and his own personal heartaches and struggles and how difficult it's been. So, he's going on my prayer list. Now, it doesn't mean that right then and there, is that, or at least not with him, it wasn't the time to whip out a track and say, well, Jesus can fix all that for you. Maybe sometimes that's the way, but that wasn't the way that it was supposed to be on Friday. But, and I even, I said, Lord, should I tell him I'm praying for him? And I just really didn't have any peace about that. He knows I'm a preacher. But it was just, no, don't tell him you're praying for him. Just pray for him. Put him on your prayer list. Now listen, here's, here's, here's my point. We're all done and we're going to pray for our College students. There should be names on your prayer list that are not on anyone else's prayer list in the church. Why? Because you know people that the rest of us don't know. How many of you going to school, back to school in the next couple of weeks? And I'm talking about high school, grade school. Okay. You're going to have classmates that none of the rest of us know. You know, we can have all kinds of protests about the Bible in school and all that. Oh, okay, fine. But I'll tell you what, nobody can stop you from praying for them. I don't mean you have to go up to the teacher and can I have a list of all of my classmates so I can take it home, put them on my prayer list? Well, that's not going to go well. 
But as the school year progresses, you meet another school classmate that you didn't know before, I'm going to pray for them. In third grade, I got a burden to pray for. No, fourth grade. It was fourth grade. I got a burden to pray for my classmates. No, it was third grade. It doesn't matter. Does it matter? Why, why do I care? I remember one time during free time, I had the chance to sit. And I want to name their name, but I just, you know, just on the off chance that uh, I probably shouldn't. But, and I sat with, we, we, it was, we were supposed to be like a study, private study time. Where the three of us were sitting there, me and two of my friends. And they, I promise you, I, and I had been praying because I got the burden in church. I had been praying, Lord, I wish there was some way to, for these guys to hear the gospel. And I'm not kidding you. They asked me, what do they teach at your church? So I told, I told the one friend, his name was Danny. I told Danny, and Danny prayed and received Christ as his Savior. And Another guy had come up, and he came up halfway through that conversation, and he said, what was that you, just, you guys were just doing? And I told him, he said, tell me. And he prayed and trusted Christ. I have no idea what those two guys are, Danny and Craig. I haven't seen them since, I don't know, seventh grade. But there's a possibility that then and there they put their faith in Jesus Christ and we'll see them in heaven. My pastor wasn't ever going to have the chance to witness to them. He, did, he wasn't in my third grade class. I'm saying your prayer list should have names on it that nobody else, listen, your prayer list and mine should have names on it that no one else in the world has on their prayer list because God brought you across their path because he doesn't do anything from scratch. He hasn't done anything from scratch since creation. He is waiting on a human instrument to do for someone else what someone did for you. Somebody prayed for you. He's waiting for you to pray the people in your life, the people that I'm never going to meet, the people that your Sunday school teacher is never going to meet. They're in your life for a reason because God wanted them to have a prayer war. Hey, wouldn't it be crazy to get to heaven and find this out? This last little thought. Wouldn't it be crazy to get to heaven and find this out? That the reason we stayed in some of the ruts we stayed in for so long is because God had us there until we began to pray for the people in that rut. You know, now that you're praying for them, I can let you move on. But I'd let you keep going through that circle until you realize I am these people's prayer warriors. Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight to pray for all men.